You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity. This is episode 11, and our interview today is with Helen Kim. But first, you can support Sparrows and Wildflowers on SoundCloud by following the podcast and favoriting the episodes you like best. You can also show your support on iTunes by subscribing, rating the podcast, and even leaving a review. And as always, if you have a question or would like to suggest an interviewee, then send me an email to hello at rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L-A, simpson.com. We're lucky today to hear from Helen Kim, director of a not-for-profit called Hope for Sydney. Helen shares about growing up as a Korean-American in the Midwest of America. She shares about moving to New York City for college. Helen went on to work for the New York City Economic Development Corporation for eight years, a role that she eventually left to work in full-time Christian ministry. And she reflects on being a New Yorker when the global financial crisis hit. Helen shares really beautifully about the work that she now does with Hope for Sydney, with refugees, the homeless and the elderly. If you're interested in learning more about or getting involved with Hope for Sydney, then you can do so at hopeforsydney.org or on the Hope for Sydney Facebook page. And now here's my conversation with Helen Kim. I grew up outside of Chicago, Illinois, in the middle of the United States and in a suburb in Indiana. It was a small town, about 20,000. Demographically, it was about 97% Caucasian. So I'm Korean-American, and I was a little bit different from everyone else. And uh, it was also a very safe and good neighborhood. Um, Some people have mentioned that there were more doctors per capita in that town than anywhere else in Indiana, but that might be a rumor. (laughs) So, So that's what it was like. Wow. And was it a positive experience growing up coming from a different cultural background? Was it a positive experience? Positive. Yeah. Uh, sure. It was not negative, but I had, I think, a lot of privilege. I, um, my parents were leaders in their community um, and, uh, you know, professionals. And so we were, I guess, well accepted by the community around us. Nice. And what are some of your early memories from growing up? From growing up, I would say, let's see, just having a freedom in a, in a, suburb, a safe suburb, um, the ability to walk around or ride my bicycle anywhere. Mm. Um, when I was younger, there were a few cornfields still around, and eventually, um, of course, uh, it became more populated and uh, those disappeared. But um, uh, just good people, solid people in the Midwest. Mm. Um, People who like to take a, a sometimes a difficult situation and just make it uh, endurable and uh, optimistic, um, to have an optimistic look at it so people can all have a better uh, way of coping with it together. So, yeah, I think that's... Do you think that's an uh, American trait or a rural community trait? Uh, it was certainly a Midwestern trait during the time when I was growing up. I haven't been there for a long time. Mm. But, um, yeah, I, I would mark, I'd like to say that Midwesterners are hardy people. Do you have a first memory of God or of religion? I remember being very young and um, attending a Korean church in Chicago with my parents. Um, it was a converted temple. 
uh, that became a Korean church. And that's one early memory, just what that looked like on the inside. I remember my grandmother being very faithful and watching her underline passages in the Bible. And I also remember um, learning to pray at a very young age. And that was something that I think stuck with me for all of my life. Wow, yeah. beautiful. And do you think either your Korean or your American culture has really influenced the way you do your faith now? Hmm. Probably. And probably in ways that I, I'm not even aware of. I mean, cultural yeah. influence is something, yeah, we, we're all kind of embedded in. True. And in terms of Korean, you know, I could probably refer to some things that may be true or may not be true. I'm not really sure because I'm not sure if I had a typical Korean experience mm. in America, especially after I met some Korean friends in college, okay. or what you call university. And, uh, and, um, but they have an emphasis, I think, in general, you can say Koreans in America pray a lot, and they pray mm. um, fervently and persistently, often very early in the morning. <laughs> They'll go to, a, go to a campground and pray, and or go to a mountain or any mountainous region and pray. And that's, that's um, prayer is an emphasis in my, in my life. I think just naturally I would gravitate to prayer. Um, and besides that, uh, I'm very practically minded, uh, pragmatic, I guess you can say. It's, it took some rendering of mine to actually be more rigorous in my uh, young adulthood to examine scripture in a way that formed uh, a theological understanding of my faith versus one that was based more on what I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. um, but that might be true despite cultural culture. So, yeah. yeah, it's hard to separate it all out, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And what about school? Were you a kid that enjoyed school? I loved school. Uh, I did well in school. I was a big fish in a small pond. Um, and uh, uh, it was, I went to a public school from K through 12 and um, uh, enjoyed everything that I could get my hands on. Um, uh, sports, uh, some like early advanced learning stuff. Um, yeah, just in general. I wouldn't say I was the most social person in school. That was not the reason why I was excited about school. I actually was excited about learning. Mm. Yeah. And then you went on to do both an undergraduate and then a master's at uni? Yes, I went to college at Bryn Mawr College, which is an all-women's uh, college in Pennsylvania. And then I went to uh, Columbia University in New York City for my master's in public administration. Wow. Yeah. So in America, you would move away from your home commonly? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very common thing. When you're 18, you leave the home and make something of yourself. Mm. And most kids like to wander if they could. And I did. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you find that? It was challenging without a doubt. I think it might have been one of the most confusing times in my life, I think, between the ages of 18 and 23. Mm -hmm. um, 22 is when I, but I just extended by here. Um, to go to college and be by myself, I, I was really excited about, I guess, redefining myself. I guess that was the opportunity that you have. But... Um, in so doing, I didn't know how to um, fig you know, figure out what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I think I had a very sheltered life growing up, so um, not knowing how to make good decisions, I think, was, um, was what I was 
kind of left with. Um, I was emotional, I think, because that's the age to be emotional if you want to be. I wanted to have lots of friends, and I think probably one of my chief idols at the time was peer acceptance. And so I did whatever I could to be in the cool crowd. Mm. Yeah. And was there a time in amongst that or after that that faith in Jesus became a reality for you personally? Yeah, I still went to church every Sunday, probably more like a ritual, and I definitely would have called myself a Christian. Mm -hmm. I think once I stepped out, out of the church, um, I was just like everybody else, and I didn't really recognize the dichotomy so much. Um, but uh, scripture became alive to me when I was 23, mm -hmm. so a year after college, and um, after I thought that I, at least on the surface, had the stuff that I wanted. I had friends and um, uh, like a boyfriend and, you know, living independently and had a job and everything and had no joy at all. And I can only explain that by the Holy Spirit. Um, I... I don't know how. I, I realized that, that if I wanted joy, I would know where to go, and that would be to God. Wow. So that's when the, the year of 23 was a blessed year for me. I used to love waking up early in the morning and reading the Bible, even if I didn't fully understand it. Just the ability to commune with God was, uh, was joyful. Wow. Yeah. So that kind of recommitment, coming back to well, reigniting, I guess, your relationship with Christ was something you did kind of personally and privately. Yeah, somehow it ended up that way, and I'm thankful that it didn't last too long, uh, the, the alone part, because I really did need to hear from someone outside of myself to clarify things. Uh, not that I wasn't going to church to try to understand stuff, but I really don't think I had um, a, a grasp of grace um, until I, I went to Redeemer. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And can you um, tell us a bit about that journey, how you got to the Redeemer Church, which I believe is in New York? That's right, yeah. yeah. Once I got into Columbia, that was the reason why I was in New York City, mm -hmm. um, I got to attend Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and the senior minister is Tim Keller. Um, and what was the experience like? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Um, the first year, I think you, you can't get past how gifted Tim Keller is mm -hmm. because he could make everything so relevant. It was almost as if he could read your thoughts and your reasoning and that he would address all of that. Um, he Almost as if he knew what you were reading and what you were influenced by. And But more importantly, that he could explain Christ and the gospel and how that would would speak into the way that we were perceiving the world. In other words, he was, he was affecting our worldview through a gospel lens. And so the first year, um, of course, um, I, I'm noticing, I was noticing how well he was able to explain those things, like I had never experienced anything like that before. But pretty soon I started to recognize also two things. One, that the only reason why he was able to do that was because he had a relationship with God that was based on a different set of assumptions that I had. I did not assume that God was necessarily um, what is it? That's really good, actually. Mm. I think I had to question that in the beginning. Or, um, uh, or any number of ways that we understand God now. now. And he, he had a, a, a deep and loving relationship with God, a trusting relationship, and I wanted to have what he had. 
So that was one key moment of understanding. And the other thing was, as he was explaining grace, I understood it personally for me. So, um, you know, like I said, when I was wandering um, or not really firm in my faith, I uh, did things that I think I knew I was, was probably wrong. Mm-hmm. But um, I just did them anyway. There's no real explanation, There's, uh, no reason. And then I, during my first year uh, of being saved, if you can call it that, uh, I felt guilty. Mm-hmm. Actually, I probably felt guilty for, for, for many years. It just um, was kind of a way to drive myself to do and act in a certain way. And to pers- the, the way the gospel spoke personally to me was that it was to understand that uh, though I could not forgive myself, um, I did not have that authority <laughs> in the first place. <laughs> yeah. So God had that authority and that I, I had to rest in his forgiveness of me by looking at the cross. That was probably a pivotal thing. Wow. Yeah. It's really profound. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you ended up working at that church, is that right? Well, I, I uh, worked for about 10 years in public policy, so that's, okay. that was my chief career. Mm. Um, and I worked for the city of New York in, for economic development uh, for about eight years. Then I worked for uh, Redeemer's Church Planting Center. Okay. And the only reason why I started working there was because I was praying with them uh, weekly, early in the morning on Tuesdays, and it turned out that though they asked a lot of people to join them in prayer, not a lot of people showed up. <laughs> so they, th- they must have thought that I really liked them, so they asked me to work with them. And uh, not even clear on what the role exactly would be, but they were going to spin off and become their own um, organization. And uh, they, I guess they were looking to hire someone to help them out um, as they, they prepared to do stuff like that. Wow. So you left a 10-year public policy career to, to join this new ministry? Yeah. Uh, it was not an easy—I said no, um, actually, when they asked. And it took about five months for me to go back to them and say, is that position still open? Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I think I'm okay with it now. So could you tell us a little bit about those years that you were working for the New York City Economic Development Corporation? Sure. Uh, When I started out, I wasn't sure I wanted to work there, to be honest with you. Um, I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, It's a quasi-governmental agency, so it's run like uh, a corporation and doesn't have the same red tape that other New York City agencies have. And uh, it's very business-oriented, and they try to attract large businesses and develop industry growth in throughout New York City. And uh, I grew to like it because I started to take it seriously about my first year in. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I started to say to myself, I should probably be thankful <laughs> for the fact that I have this job. Um, and I, I will be thankful to God by doing my job well. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I ended up staying there for as long as I did and uh, started to get more responsibilities and promotions. And we, I got to work on a number of different projects. Um, I think that there was a time when I had to like juggle about 10 different projects at the same time, anything from um, biotechnology growth to you know, um, recycling, <laughs> the recycling industry, uh, to measuring the economy and writing newsletters about the uh, economic health of the city, so yeah, that it's it was uh, it was fun. Yeah, in a city like New York, that must have been quite 
amazing. It was. It definitely was. It's kind of like a small country. Mm. And coming from the Midwest background, was that quite a stark contrast? I guess I didn't really think about it that way. At that point, I was um, accustomed to thinking like a New Yorker, that mm -hmm. everything is possible and you should expect a lot from yourself and everybody's working really hard. So, yeah, I guess uh, you're just amongst it. So, And how was the transition into the ministry role? That was surprising for me, I think, because even though I was a Christian working in... Um, the secular workplace, and I thought that I had my um, my priorities right. Once I started working for Redeemer uh, City to City, that's what it's called now, I started to recognize that I still had leftover secular values, at least when it came to working, like the work priorities or what work values. And work is generally driven by performance. Performance, of course, is important but trying to impress whoever is important that enough to impress um, money, you know, how, how much you're making or what kinds of effects you're having with your projects. Um, um, have some uh, reputation building and, and all those things that, you, that make sense when you're working in the private sector. When I got to Redeemer, there was this emphasis on relationships <laughs> like and, and having a, a work place that um, honors God uh, in every way. We had prayer in the middle of our work as well at times. And, um, and so it, it was just very different. I had never been part of any kind of a ministry where, you know, um, where we are trying to, we, we also had to, to raise funds for our work as well. And I just wasn't accustomed to that kind of a, a place. Uh, we, I came from a family that gave money, so it was a, a different thing to ask for money mm. and to see that that is something that can um, encourage people in faith to, to live the, out their faith in that particular way in terms of stewardship. So that was also uh, a new thing for me. Mm. So apart from the fundraising, what were you doing in that role? Um, yeah, like I said, I, I don't know whether it was terribly clearly defined when I got there. Um, part of it was, let me try to remember, I remember doing a little bit of research. I definitely worked on some of the communications items, um, tried to develop a, a system of communication amongst the, everybody on staff was a, either a missionary, a former missionary or, or a, a coach, uh, has a ministry background. Mm-hmm. And I, I, and I didn't. <laughs> so it's, they, they have their own way of doing things. And, but at the same time, we had to work as a group. And I was trying to work on um, bringing uh, their communication in. And I think that was a bit of, a, and also developing a website and every kind of project that you can, I even like bought furniture for the office. So it was a small team. <laughs> there were about six, maybe-ish uh, staff people. And um, I just kind of had, did anything. Great. To, to make it work out, yeah. And what were the ministries that the team were working in? The ministries, uh, it's church planting. So they were, they existed as a department at Redeemer before they spun off. And so they were already planting churches, um, different denominations, um, finding funding for these church planters. Um, providing seed funding, but before even all that, they assess these candidates 
um, who want to plant churches in urban areas, large urban areas. That's the, the key thing that they do. And so um, I guess if you want to talk in terms of departments or division, um, what pe- what divisions, what people did, uh, there was um, the guy who worked in the Australia-Asia region. There's the guy who works in Europe, um, the other one who works for South America, and then North America. And so that's kind of how they're all doing a lot of the same stuff, mm-hmm. um, but promoting church planting, having um, a DNA of being outward focused uh, with the gospel and, and uh, helping church planters to build churches that were relevant for their community, for their neighborhoods, and um, and being able to speak into their culture. So that's that was their effort. Yeah. Great. And is that what brought you across to Sydney? No, I came here for completely different reasons. I stopped working at Redeemer and then for a couple of years tried to figure out what I was going to do next. I kind of hit this point in my life when I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and in that, um, at that time, the GFC hit. <laughs> so that was not a good timing. And mm-hmm. my twin nephews were born here in Australia. My brother is in finance. So uh, he invited me to come out here, and I just came because I had nothing better to do. And I thought that would be nice <laughs> to see my nephews. Wow. Yeah. Had, I had nothing to do with Redeemer that for as far as why I got here for, in the first place. Right. Yeah. And so for the time that you were in New York when the GFC hit, do you have any reflections about observing that crisis hitting that city? Yeah, it's a little bit scary. I think a lot of people uh, became unemployed. And personally, I think I I had to figure out, you have to preach to yourself. I mean, people do preach to to themselves all the time. But what is the message that you're telling yourself at, at, at a moment of uncertainty and I guess uh, it boiled down to who am I, you know, what, what kind of a person am I? And that's the question that I ask myself all the time. But when you have long stretches of time by yourself, you're, it becomes a very intense question. Mm. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, I remember having to talk, having these long conversations with God and writing a lot of stuff down and uh, talking with my friends and seeing the world differently because now as a person that could could very much relate to someone who loses everything and could be that homeless person um, and uh, and and looking at the world from that point of view, which means like there's a slight feeling of you know desperation or like how what you know kind of a scrambling feeling and also a feeling of like who is sensitive to this like who's gonna hear and not just um, seem to hear but not really listen to what you're saying mm. so um, it, it definitely gave me a, uh, a unique perspective just the fear alone kind of put that in there wow yeah and what was the experience like coming to Sydney after that that was it's, it's, it has been really intense actually and I've been here for four years um, it was intense to take care of twin babies <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden they were seven months old and uh, sleeping, I think I averaged about five and a half hours of sleep every day because there were two of them. And um, looking for a com- Christian community uh, because my sister-in-law is not Christian, so um, but I was seeking a, a more, a, you know, different environment. So on Sundays I got, got to come to uh, Church Hill. Back then it was called St. Philip's Church here in Sydney. And 
you know, felt like it was a haven. It was, it was a, it was a blessing. Mm -hmm. And then also starting to figure out that I, I'd like to be here for a while because um, uh, as I stayed at St. Philip's, I helped to develop a, a post-church prayer, a post-service prayer, um, and the and a church care ministry that we call Act Six. And Act Six is based on the diaconate ministry at Redeemer. And that's a core group of people who help people in their churches who are experiencing temporary financial distress. Mm -hmm. And we come alongside them, um, sit with them as we go through their budgets, ask them to do certain things, um, uh, help them with their, their, you know, their feelings of uncertainty and self-worth because money has that kind of impact on people. Yeah. So, um, uh, so to be able to speak, help, help people by speaking the gospel into their lives and the way that they are struggling personally. And then um, also to help pay for some of their bills, and that's how um, the, the ministry works. Wow. And is that that's for people in the community more broadly that you are helping or from the church? It's people who regularly attend the church. Mm -hmm. So um, that's the way it, it is set up at Redeemer, and it was what I was familiar mm -hmm. with here. Yeah. And so we trained a few people to mm -hmm. be... In, in at Redeemer, they would be called deacons and deaconesses. Here, they, we we struggle to have on the. I don't even know if we have an official name of that group of people, but people who are mature and um, are accustomed to helping others and yeah. are compassionate and can listen well and definitely can keep things confidential. That's a key thing when you're helping someone through something like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, so as I was setting those things up, I was getting more uh, invested in the community here. I wanted to stay. One of the church members uh, sat on the board, actually a couple church members, they sat on the board of Hope for Sydney, which existed before I came on. And um, they were looking to employ someone and I was looking to stay. And so they became my sponsor, my visa. And that's how I started working, uh, how, how I started to work here. Fantastic. For listeners who don't know Hope for Sydney, can sure, you tell yeah. us about what that is? Yeah, Hope for Sydney is definitely modeled after Hope for New York. Which is an affiliate organization, a separate nonprofit um, of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and they are what they they would call the outward-facing um, social or mercy and justice ministry of Redeemer. And Hope for Sydney doesn't have an anchor church like that. We partner with many churches, or we um, fi find our volunteers through many churches, and we connect them with charitable activities throughout Sydney. Um, right now, the way that we're doing it is we find organizations that kind of make it a little bit easy for volunteering amongst young, particularly young um, adults and young workers, to join. So they allow for group activities. Um, not, not a lot of skill is involved you know, or necessary. And the commitment is very much desired, but, also, but not mandatory. So we're talking low skill low commitment and um, what Hope for Sydney also wants to do is besides vet those activities um, broadcast them through social media uh, through networks um, through um, hopefully some, some of our videos <laughs> get watched um, through a website that's appealing that sort of thing trying to to, to build up awareness about it mm. uh, about those activities but also to to speak into these volunteers so it's not just 
it is not just walking in. I, ultimately, we would like people to understand why they serve, have a theological basis, yeah. so that even though they walk in with service first and caring first, they ought to be able to explain why they're doing what they're doing mm -hmm. and to have a distinct way of serving that's loving and caring and high integrity. Um, and so we have provided training and will provide more training in, in the future. Um, to volunteers who are trying to understand that a little bit better and to also become more comfortable speaking with people who are very different from themselves oftentimes. Great. Yeah. Sounds very exciting. And there's a lot of work done in Hope for Sydney uh, with the homeless from sharing meals through to sharing biblical scriptures. Are there any key stories or maybe breakthroughs from those ministries that you could share with us? Yeah, there are a few partners that we have. Um, one is here at Churchill, they have a city care lunch. There's also one at St. John's Glebe. They um, address uh, the needs in their community. Um, Surrey Hills Urban Mission is, uh, is a long, it's been going on for many years at, at Central Station for the homeless there. And I think there are a couple others. And so, um, my experience has been chiefly here at Churchill because it's been easy for me to get here. And they put out a, a barbecue lunch for the homeless in the area in the CBD. Um, I've connected with people who, and they're mostly men for, for some reason, um, who kind of struggle with faith. And Justin Moffitt, who's the rector here, would probably, has called them their spiritual group. You know, they have an interesting perspective. So uh, I think it's just interesting that they come back, you know, for these barbecues and continue the conversation. And they like that they're in a safe environment and they're able to be heard rather than just talked to. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's been, that's been fun. And it also, I'd love to play a little, it's not really a mind game, but I like to remind uh, things, remind guys that I've spoken to in the past of what they've told me because I think they expect me to forget <laughs> they've told, yeah, right. told me those things. I'm like, hey, I remember what you and your, um, these issues that you have. And they're like, they kind of freak out a little bit. So it's fun. I, I, I just have fun with the guys here. And that's been fun. Um, one story that I can say, can tell, which is a little bit different, is that someone had come, uh, contacted Hope for Sydney through our website. And was not. I usually ask uh, people who ask us for volunteer activities, what church they attend. And uh, this particular person said uh, he did not attend a church, and he was um, actually from a foreign country. And I said, well, why don't you come to our church? And he seemed a little bit hesitant. But I said, if you join our city care lunch for the homeless, um, the service happens right before. Might as well come if you want to check it out. And he did. And I think he was surprised because he saw a community in service for the homeless and a community that also accepted him and welcomed him and was telling him about the gospel. Uh, eventually, he came to know Christ, which is a lovely uh, story. But I think the, the thing that gets me is that he, he had the environment for him to think about um, what the gospel is for himself. And, uh, and I think I remember reading a little blurb on Facebook where he said, I can't walk by a homeless person in the same way that I used to, <laughs> mm. which is, um, which is, I think, I think that's right, you know, to process faith together with how that works out. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. 
So Hope for Sydney also does work with a lot of other different groups, including specifically youth and specifically the elderly. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about ministering to those two age groups? I can talk about them. They're not really comparable, I guess you can say. The elderly that we work with at Elizabeth Lodge, and I think we, we tried another place as well, and we'd love to expand this in the future. The elderly are forgotten because I think people just tend to do that. It's, the children are a little bit more, I don't know, attractive to in terms of um, working with. And But the elderly, their lives are valuable and they are entering that stage in some of these homes um, where it's, the, it's the, the winter of their lives, if you can call it that. And um, at Elizabeth Lodge, they have a larger caseload of people who stay there who have dementia. And so you can have conversations and you're not 100% sure that they've heard any of it. Mm. And, um, and, and so if you're not comfortable just sort of shooting the breeze, um, it can be maybe uh, a little intimidating to sort of sit and talk with someone who, who is not necessarily responding to you. Oftentimes they are responsive, they don't have dementia, and they're, um, but they're lonely. And, but they have lots of great stories to tell. And so that's what working with the elderly is like. It's great when a committed group of people can keep visiting that um, facility and facilities like that and to value these people's lives. They're precious in God's eyes. Um, with children, um, we've, and, and with youth, so we've um, chiefly partnered with uh, Mars Youth Care who oversees asylum seekers, and a lot of them are, are families with young kids. And uh, I'll, I'll talk about that one. Um, the kids are just, well, they're loads of fun. And uh, very curious, uh, loved, they're very artistic and creative. Um, they're trying to understand their environment, but uh, kids who are asylum seekers um, are in homes where everything is in limbo. They're not sure whether they're gonna stay in this country, you know, for how long? Um, and their parents are not able to work oftentimes because that's they're not they're not able to with without a work visa, I mean without the the right visa. So um, at least these children can go to school, and that's that's a good thing. And they're mm. they're speaking English better than uh, oftentimes better than their parents. Um, but yeah, they're loads of fun. They're just they're like every all the other kids, you know. So I don't even know if there is a a big difference except that some of them seem keenly aware of what their situation is and when you see their artwork that reflects that that's um, that's a very interesting thing to look at yeah right very confronting yeah yeah, yeah. and I'm wondering if um, for listeners who aren't Christians are you able to explain for us the connection between your Christian faith and your drive to, to meet practical needs in the community? Yeah, I think actually Christians, well, of course there's the deep, deep history of charitable, charitable service, mm. um, but it's a part of our identity, it's part of our call. Scripturally, we have so many um, uh, verses, uh, books, chapters, that where God is explaining himself as a God of the poor, and the oppressed, and the foreigners, and the widows, the orphaned, um, and um, he calls his people to fast and pray for them. 
And that's the kind of fasting and prayer that he desires. And not just to fast and pray, but to actually care for them. And uh, that it would be unjust if we didn't do that, if we understood who we really are as children of God. And through Jesus Christ, um, uh, we know even more our indebtedness to God for receiving a salvation that we did not earn. And so to that's, you know, the gospel is an equalizer. All of a sudden you realize that there's nothing more special about any of us, but that we can see someone who is um, struggling financially or is homeless or is a foreigner um, or is an asylum seeker and say that we're not different. And, um, and if, we, if we don't have an excuse to say they don't deserve, because we didn't deserve our salvation. So there's some very big you know, uh, reasons why we have to serve as part of our faith. I don't think it's, a, it's just an optional side thing that if we want to feel good, we do. We have to do it. Mm. And for Christian listeners then, would you have, in addition to that, any words of advice or encouragement about putting their faith into practice in these practical ways? A way to encourage, I think, um, I think know why you, why you would do it. I think that's, that's a great motivator. My own personal testimony is that once I became a Christian and started to live in New York, you definitely get confronted by the homeless just like you do here. Um, they're louder in New York, just like everybody else. <laughs> but uh, they, they, I couldn't pass them by anymore because I understood grace in, in a new way. Mm-hmm. And grace compelled me to serve the poor. And the beginning is to get to know who they are. So if we just even reflect on grace itself, I think we can't look at the world the same way. and or even approach anything in life the same way. So how could we not care about people who are, are struggling? So uh, I think that's one of the motivators. Yeah. And if people want to get involved with Hope for Sydney, how would they go about that? Sure. The easy way is hopeforsydney.org. That's our website. And there is a contact us page there. And that's as soon as you email, fill, fill that out, I receive an email. And I will res- I'll respond back to you. <laughs> it's... Um, it's a one-man show right now, so that you, you can um, rest assured that I'm the one who's responding to you at that time. Uh, another way is to um, look us up on Facebook, facebook.com back, uh, or slash hopeforsydney.org. And there is an events page you can subscribe to, and you can get updates on the upcoming activities. We also have a newsletter um, that will that, uh, go into a little bit more depth about what the activities that are coming up are and where our needs are. So I'm wondering if there's a key Bible passage um, or scripture that's been really significant in your personal journey. Sure. The, one of the key verses about um, mercy and justice that I think has been very compelling for me has been uh, Matthew 25, when Jesus uh, talks about the separation of the goat and the sheep uh, on Judgment Day and um, who is going to be entering, I mean, as a, a metaphor for who's coming into the kingdom. And uh, subsequently from that, from his description of that, he starts to describe how he's going to separate goat from sheep. And he talks about um, those who, who, who have clothed him, have visited him in prison, who have uh, fed him, and 
and these people asking, when did we ever do that for you? And he said, whenever you did that for others, you did that for, for me. And uh, the opposite for the other group, that the goat who, um, who also asked, when did we not do those things to you? And, and, uh, and so that's how he makes a distinction between who is, enters the kingdom of heaven. And that's a very confrontational thing to consider that, um, that that's not the, the causal thing. It's not that if you serve uh, the poor, then, then you get into to heaven, but that as, a, as an outworking of who you are uh, and understanding your salvation by grace, that you in turn would do these things, would indicate what your faith is, who you really are, and that that would, um, that would make clear you know, who belongs to him. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Great. And are you able to sum up for us the core of your beliefs? The core of my beliefs, of course, rests in uh, an identity in Jesus Christ and resting in who He is so that I don't have to constantly chase after shaping my own identity. And that was one really big thing that uh, I processed a lot for over many years. Um, but another thing that's kind of rising up is an understanding that the kingdom of God is near and what that means and to anticipate the coming kingdom, which is a restored kingdom, a restored earth, you know, a new Jerusalem uh, when heaven and earth are together. And to believe that in this lifetime, today, we get to um, reveal that kingdom and to ask God uh, to... Um, to respond to our prayers to glorify him and to work for uh, to to reveal his love to others and uh, to know that he would also respond you know to, to know that he would answer those prayers and uh, and I think that takes a mindfulness and an anticipation and great expectation of what that kingdom will be and to desire it here um, because Jesus did come here so it's meaningful to be here, very meaningful. And um, we are the light that is in this world. And so that's shaping my, my next, but this stage, I guess, that you can say it. And, and I think in the years to come, um, to expect great things from God uh, in addition to obeying him and, um, uh, and loving him. Yeah. Great. And what are your hopes and dreams for the future? Indeed. I am finding that Sydney, like New York, it can be overwhelming, the secular culture, and especially for, for someone who's trying to ha point out a different worldview that is hopeful. And um, so in order to, to care for people differently and to um, share the hope that we have as Christians, uh, my my hope for Sydney is for kind of a culture change, you know, amongst Christians to be, to, for Christians to be um, more open about their faith and to process it within this Sydney context and to confront that context in a loving way, you know, in a gracious way and an attractive way. And to, that would mean that it's, we're not going to be comfortable. Uh, we, we're not, we can't live the way that we currently live. And, uh, and expect change to happen. It means that we have to sacrifice more of ourselves. We have to be, consider ourselves stewards of things that were given to us, you know, everything that we have, even 
the minds that we have, um, the families we were born into, these are not in our control. These are things that were given to us. And now that since we have these things, what do we do with it? And so uh, not instead of saying, well, I have these things and now everything that I accumulate is for me, um, what if we live differently and said everything that we have is for our neighbors? And um, I think that's my dream or my hope is to see uh, a community, a bigger, greater community that speaks to each other, reminding each other of these things so that we can see a momentum grow, invite our non-Christian friends to, um, to kind of experience something different, at least contemplate something different. That's, uh, and then to see something impactful, uh, something that can influence the culture. Sparrows and Wildflowers is brought to you by Victory One Media and hosted by Rachel Simpson with artwork by Nicola Gibb.